0: Well, hey friends, it's Kevin with Better Bible Reading, and on today's episode, I wanted to share with you a sermon that I had the opportunity to preach uh, a couple weeks ago over at a sister church of my own. And I don't always share sermons that I preach, but many of you do know that outside of this Channel and the podcast feed uh, that I do stay fairly active in my own church uh, between teaching Sunday school and preaching on occasion. Sometimes those occasional preaching opportunities are not only my own church, but surrounding churches that we have a relationship with. And uh, because the feedback was really encouraging, uh, I wanted to take the opportunity to share this one with you. I got permission from the church to share their uh, video recording of this. And this was preached at Grace Community Church in Yulee, Florida. I'll put a link to their church website if you're interested in learning more about them or if you find yourself in the area and interested um, in what they have going on there, what the Lord's doing. I'll be glad to share that in the description. Uh, But this sermon was preached uh, by request in the parables of Jesus, specifically the parable Of the unrighteous ruler, or some translations will call it the parable of the persistent widow. This is from Luke 18, and the lesson here is really thought provoking of how we think about prayer, how we see ourselves, and how we see the Lord in that whole dynamic and what Jesus wants to teach us in this parable. So I hope it's a blessing to you. I really appreciate all of you watching and listening to the Better Bible Reading Podcast. And I'll have more episodes for you in the very near future, but take care and enjoy this one. Well, friends, we're in Luke chapter 18 this morning, and if you are able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to be considering uh, verses 1 through 8. This should be a very familiar passage uh, to anyone who has spent time in the church uh, because it is one of the more memorable parables. And this is uh, the so-called parable of the persistent widow, or if you have a different translation, it might have a heading that says something like the parable of the unrighteous ruler. Uh, But either way, we'll deal with both of those themes here. Uh, But this is Luke 18, uh, verses 1 through 8. Hear now the word of God. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city... And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? The grass withers the flower fades away but the Word of God endures forever amen Amen. you may be seated well not only am I a native of Camden County uh, but I have spent time working on the Navy base uh, years ago and even not so long ago to the last couple years Uh, and so That was really considered, if you are from around this area, you know it is advertised, it is marketed as uh, the best thing since sliced bread. Uh, To make it into a government job is really the ideal situation. And of course, if many of you who do work in that uh, category uh, have spent any amount of time out there, then you're probably laughing because you say, well, I can think of some better things than, than that. But since my first day out there, one of the things that I was taught as a newcomer, I was fresh out of high school, was this principle, that the squeaky wheel gets the grease. This could play out in a variety of different scenarios. Uh, If you wanted your boss to get you new equipment for your shop because what you had was outdated, Uh, if you wanted to get a new job in a different area, if you wanted HR to really hear your case, if you wanted the union steward to really have your back, all you had to do was remember that the squeaky wheel gets the grease. In fact, I remember some time when I would be speaking to my supervisor about a certain scenario in our shop and uh, my coworkers would literally walk by and make squeaking sounds <laughs> to remind me of the principle that had to be maintained. And of course, some of this can be done uh, in in a sense. It's just the way that things are. You just have to go through the process. And other times, people would really manipulate the process in a very selfish way. Uh, But I'll never forget that. And it turns out that we have somewhat of a squeaky wheel principle in this passage. The only difference is Jesus presents it to us as a contrasted, principle. He wants us to see that and then he wants to turn it on its head. We could really say when we come away uh, from the text here before us in Luke 18 verses 1 to 8, uh, we could take this idea with us that when we understand the Lord's prerogative to care for us, we have every reason to pray and take heart. I want to show that to you. I, wanna, I want you to see this big idea in the text Uh, by breaking it up into three parts. First, we'll consider the content of this parable in verses 2 through 5. Secondly, we'll see the conclusion of the parable in verses 6 through 8. And then thirdly, we'll circle back around to what the course correction is for us in verse 1. So I want to tackle it in that way, verses 2 to 5, 6 to 8. And then finally back in verse 1. So first let's consider the content of this parable in verses 2 through 5. We're presented with a certain city. We don't know what this city is, but we're presented with a judge. Now, the qualifier that we're given about who this judge is, what is he like, is that he neither feared God nor respected man. You know, there are those who take both of those ideals in the best possible way, and you can see that in the book of Acts. Think about the apostles. After they're equipped, empowered with the Holy Spirit, uh, they're before rulers, rulers who could very easily take their lives, and they are telling the world the truth in love. They have a genuine love for their fellow man, and yet they say, we must obey God rather than men. There's this principle of fearing God among these apostles. And then you have in the gospel accounts, which is very clear uh, elsewhere here in Luke especially, is that we have the scribes and Pharisees. These are those who feared man in the worst possible way. We know that they wanted to make a move against Jesus, but they feared the crowds. They were worried about what the people's perception of them would look like. And then there's those of us, most of us, who lives somewhere in between those two. Our lives are sometimes marked by a principle of fearing God, of loving man. and Other times, we betray what we know God wants us to do because we're worried about what people might think. We live somewhere, we teeter between those extremes. And then there's this judge. This judge who is the worst example of both. He doesn't fear God. He doesn't respect man. He is the opposite of the two great commandments, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. If you want to see what Genesis 3 and its effects look like upon a person to the nth degree, here is your Exhibit A, this judge. He wasn't a zealot. He wasn't a philanthropist. He was a self-made man, and all he cared about was the commitment was being committed to himself 24-7, 365, even leap years. And then in verse 3, we're met with our second person. So we have a judge, an unrighteous judge, doesn't love God, doesn't love people, doesn't care about anything but himself. And then we have a widow. Verse 3, there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. Now, we don't know a whole lot about this widow. We don't know what the circumstances are of what the legal issue is or who the adversary is. Uh, We don't know if she has any children, uh, but presumably she doesn't, at least not children of age that could maybe come to her aid and help her through whatever process. And she certainly doesn't have a husband because she is is, uh, described to us as a widow. So this is a vulnerable person. This is somebody who has to be their own advocate, it seems like, because she has the help of absolutely no one. Uh, We could really read this when she says, give me justice against my adversary. If you compared different Bible translations, if you did a word study, you could see that she's saying, avenge me. She's saying, grant me justice. She's saying, give me legal protection. And that uh, description of an adversary could really read, give me legal protection. Protection against this prosecuting attorney. There's some kind of legal issue happening. Maybe it's her house, Uh, maybe it's some possession or whatever the case may be. Maybe things really went off the rails after her husband passed away. We don't know, but she's in dire need and she has nobody but the worst possible person to go to this unrighteous judge who cares about nothing but himself, and yet she's so desperate that she's going to take it and run with it. She continues to go to him. She keeps coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. And here, in verse 4, we see the squeaky wheel principle happening. For a while, he refused. So imagine, she's going to his court. She's appearing before him. And he keeps shutting her down. Go back home. I don't care about your situation. There's no reason for me to involve myself with this. But she keeps returning, maybe day after day, week after week, month after month. For a while, he refused. But afterward, he said to himself, and this is the sad part, he knows this about himself. Though I neither fear God nor respect man, verse 5, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. This man is committed to himself, but he can't enjoy that enterprise, that worldview of his, that pursuit of life of being committed to himself because there's this bothersome widow. There's this squeaky wheel happening in his head, and he doesn't know how to turn it off because she keeps showing back up. And he says, I guess the only way to move on is to give her what she wants. Then I'll be able to continue with my... Love of myself. The squeaky wheel principle. The judge finally has enough and he gives her the grease. But notice, the reason he does this is out of frustration. It's out of a lack of patience. It's the ticking time bomb of his personality, of his character qualities that cause him to act. He is unwilling to endure her petitions any longer. Uh, My wife and I <clears throat> not too long ago, uh, found ourselves at the ER uh, out of a precaution for something. And if you have visited the ER anytime after 2020, you know that what used to maybe be about a three-hour window of your day turns into eight, nine, ten, eleven hours. And if you do that in somewhere like Jacksonville, you can multiply it by about 12 to whatever number you come up with. Sitting in the ER waiting room is not fun, and there are a variety of different circumstances of the people there waiting to get help. But let me tell you what makes it even worse than sitting in an ER waiting room. Sitting in an ER waiting room when they're testing the fire alarms. No lie, this is what happened to us, and... As we're, you know, we put in a few hours at this point, we're waiting uh, to be called back, and the fire alarm is now being tested for maybe the third or fourth time, and each time it goes on for longer and longer before they shut it off. And the man across from us, as we're sitting in the waiting room, uh, there's another man to my right. The man across from us, and I didn't notice this until it was already happening, But he let out a big sigh when the alarm started going off, and I thought, okay, he's just frustrated about this like everybody else. A few seconds later, out of my peripheral vision, the man next to me gets up. I look over, and the other man across from me is now having a seizure. And he's about two seconds from face-planting onto the tile. The man beside me caught him. He broke the fall. I'm over there trying to move things out of the way, assuming that people are going to rush over here. Everybody else is calling help and this is obviously not a good, you know, scenario waiting in the ER waiting room and it seemed like forever and ever and ever before any doctor or any nurse came in to help now I will tell you this when somebody finally came they wheeled the man right into a room and so me and my wife were thinking I guess that's all you have to do if you just you just have have the seizure that's what's going to make the difference here now I did see him later he was he was fine thank the lord um, but it took that, evidently, that uh, petitioning, if you will, for somebody to finally say, okay, enough is enough, let's get this man what he wants. Sometimes that's how it feels in the uh, scenery here in this text, that it takes drastic measures, that it takes an ongoing and ongoing and ongoing petition before you finally get the help that you need. We might be tempted to think that way about prayer, that it means that we have to go to the very end of ourselves before the Lord hears us, before He's willing to rise and take action. He waits till the final moment. It's tempting to think that way. The world might encourage us to think that way. Well, if there is a God, He's certainly too busy to be bothered by you. But notice that Jesus turns this on its head. Notice that Jesus doesn't want us to walk away from this parable thinking that. What is the conclusion that Jesus wants us to have in this parable? That's what we see in verses 6 through 8. The conclusion of the parable first reads this. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. A good modern translation might sound something like this. Jesus says, go back and read verse 5 again. So let's do that. Actually, let's start in verse 4. For while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. Jesus says, take that to heart. The words that you just heard from this unrighteous judge, consider those. Now let's contrast that. Let's compare, and now let's contrast that with the Lord himself. Verse 7. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Now let's stop right there. Jesus wants us to do a double take between what this unrighteous judge shows us and how it serves as a negative example. The world might say it's a positive example. That's exactly what God is like. But Jesus says it's exactly how God is not. This is exactly what God is not like. In Calvin's Institutes, obviously in a Presbyterian context, that's one of those books that you hear a lot about, it's a very thick and massive book, but thankfully for this quote, all you have to do, if you've never spent the time in Calvin's Institutes, all you've got to do is read the first page, because it comes from the first page. He gives us a twofold knowledge of wisdom. He says, wisdom has to do with this, knowing God and knowing ourselves. And these are mutually inclusive, not exclusive. What we learn about ourselves begins to push us towards the knowledge of God, and vice versa. When we learn about God, it begins to teach us something about ourselves. Sometimes it's a positive-positive, sometimes it's a negative-positive, so on and so forth. But Calvin says this, We are accordingly urged by our own evil things to consider the good things of God. We are accordingly urged by our own evil things to consider the good things of God. Of God. This is exactly what Jesus is telling us to do in relation to this unrighteous judge and the judge of all the earth, God himself. The negative example of this judge helps to contrast and show us the positive reality of who God is. We follow this rule. God is not like the unrighteous judge. This unrighteous judge might be a lot like us, but he's not anything like God. God answers us out of an abundance of his grace and love. He doesn't do so to give grease for a squeaky wheel. God's response to prayer is not, please, enough about that, here's your answer. God's attitude towards prayer is not, I can't be bothered with you right now, I have more important things to focus on. God's response to our prayer is certainly not, I don't have enough uh, discipline here to endure this anymore. I don't have enough patience to handle you anymore. God's response is way better than grease for a squeaky wheel. But friends, if we consider this passage as well, we might say this, that more often than not, we are not like this persistent widow. We don't approach prayer in this way of consistency. We don't approach prayer in a way of knowing it's just a matter of time before I get my answer. Now, this doesn't have anything to do with manipulating God to give us the the, the good things of this world or anything like that. This is not a prosperity message here that if you bug God enough, he'll give you whatever you want. But as we ask anything according to the will of God, he will. It's not an option. It's not up for debate. He's made that known about himself. But then there's an interesting way that this text also transitions. Jesus says, Look at this example. God is not like this judge, and more often than not, we are not like this widow. But then Jesus says something really interesting in the end of the passage. He says, I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? So we know that. Jesus is going to come back, not only to judge his enemies, but to vindicate his people. Uh, There is going to be a final judgment. There's also going to be rewards given to his saints. He is going to nourish us with all of the good things that we expect from him, that he has promised to us. But the hanging question is, will he find faith on earth? We might ask it this way, which category do we anticipate that we will fall into here? Is it his return in judgment, or is it his return for vindication for his people? Now, that's a good question to ask. But unfortunately, at this point, many people take this parable and run off the rails. I've heard many conversations, I've heard many... Uh, considerations of this passage uh, default to that final verse. We're kind of used to reading in this way as uh, Western people that we work through the beginning to the end and we assume that everything to be said to us happens on that final verse. That's the big takeaway is the final verse. And so things get really tricky and convoluted when the question, will he find faith on earth, turns this parable into something like, I wonder what the over-under is for Christians and non-Christians when Jesus comes back. Are we talking 50-50? It certainly sounds like it's going to be less than the majority. And that's what the whole parable becomes about. Or people will take that verse in in, in, uh, verse 7. He will not, excuse me, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? And then they go to verse 8, and he asks the question, will he find faith on earth? And they say, oh, I guess the elect can lose their salvation because he's going to return and there's not going to be faith on earth. The rhetorical question implies, no, there won't be. So you can lose your salvation. I mean, people go crazy with this passage, and they rob it of all of the good things that the Lord wants us to take away. He wants us to consider that question but he doesn't want to give it to us in a way for open-ended speculation. And the reason we know that is because that's not what parables are for. Parables are not given to us that we might speculate about the finer points, that we might speculate about, okay, which person am I, which person is he, but Jesus gives us parables as course corrections for our lives. And thankfully, we don't have to guess what this course correction is because he flat out tells us. And that's why we have to rewind back to verse 1. The guesswork is taken out because Luke so graciously, unlike some parables where the meaning is uh, kind of left for our interpretation, we're told what this parable is about. We're told what we're supposed to do. He told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. That's what the parable is about, friends it's not supposed to be a speculation, it's not supposed to be a doubting exercise, it's supposed to be comfort for God's people. I don't know if you know this, but losing heart is not very comforting, and Jesus implies and intends for us to have the exact opposite response to this parable, that we never lose heart and we always pray. If you read uh, different translations, uh, you might read verse 1 in this way, he told them a parable to the effect that they ought to pray or it behooves you to pray at all times. The idea is a responsibility. The idea is what is fitting for the circumstance. The idea is what is in agreement with who you are. We might say, by way of comparison, uh, is prayer a suggestion here or is it a command? Well, it's both. You think about food. Eating food, for you and I, has an oughtness to it, you ought to eat food, it behooves you to eat food, it's a good idea to eat food on a regular basis. Now nobody's going to hold you down and and force feed you, but if you decide I'm just not going to do that, well you know what happens eventually, right? So it is a command because it's, it's a thing that is necessary for who we are. Prayer works the same way. It's not only a suggestion and encouragement, but Jesus is telling us, This is what my people are to be like. And the reason we know that is because he's already told us that in verse 7. How does he personify the elect? The elect cry to him day and night. That principle of always praying is alive and well in the passage. To be God's elect, to be his beloved ones, is really what that word implies, is an attitude of prayer, of crying out to him day and night. And unlike this woman who was maybe just you know, hedging her bets, maybe this guy is going to eventually give me this grease, maybe he's going to get tired of me squeaking here, the elect pray out of faith. The elect pray because we know that we have a God who hears us. We have a God who delights to respond to us in a favorable way for our good. There's also a direct correlation here between always pray and never lose heart. We might say that it is a repetition. To always pray is our defense against losing heart. If we find ourselves not praying... We find ourselves in a situation where we're now very likely to lose heart. The motivation, the defense for having hearts that are pleased with God, that rest in Him, that are assured of His goodness, that's what prayer does. That is what God gives it to us for. So how can we take this and really make it our own? How can we come away with the uh, takeaway of the parable? that we find in verse 1, and come away with comfort. Well, I want to read a quote from Luther who says this. When the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and where he is, there I shall be too. What Luther is saying is, friends, we once stood condemned. We were worthy of judgment. We were in dire need of legal protection. We had an adversary who rose up to condemn us, to cause us to lose heart to cause us to drift away from the good things of God, from God's sacrifice in Christ. On our own, we do stand condemned. On our own, we can't expect God to care anything about our prayers. But that's not where the story ends for those of us who are in Christ. And friend, if you're not in Christ, know that this passage invites you to him. Know that he is revealing something very important about himself for your good, for your joy, that you might come to him and receive salvation. We understand this, that we do have an adversary, but we also have a great high priest. We also have the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We have Christ who is our great advocate. And when the Father looks on us, though we would stand condemned on our own in the perfection of Christ, His perfect obedience, His perfect substitute on our behalf to suffer our sin, to suffer our condemnation, we have right standing with God. All of the benefits that He has earned are ours in Him. We're justified. That's how the Apostle Paul words it. And though our adversary still seeks to accuse us, still seeks to rob us of our joy, still seeks to rob us of the truth of the gospel. The Apostle Paul says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. This same Jesus who's telling us this parable, to always pray and not lose heart, is the Jesus that tells his beloved apostles in the upper room, in this world you will have tribulation. Circumstantially, you would have every reason to lose heart. But what does Jesus tell them after uttering those words? He says, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Friends, that's the greatest motivation for prayer. Because we have found ourselves in a similar situation to this persistent widow. But the difference is we don't have an unrighteous judge that we have to plead our case to, twist his arm, bug him to the point of uh, extinction. We have a judge of all the earth. We have a good God who has made a way for us to bring our petitions to him, to draw near to his throne of grace that we find mercy and help in time of need. And he delights to do this. He's the one that has made this possible. He is the one that has brought us into this right standing so that he would gladly hear our petitions. We're reminded of this great privilege that we have, and we're reminded that because God has already proven his track record for us, we have every reason to go to him in prayer. When We're reminded of the goodness of the gospel. We're reminded of why we should pray. Why we should always pray. And Augustine says in this passage, it's not about praying in terms of length, but we're talking about being persistent in prayer. We're talking about knowing that we can always come to the Lord in prayer. And I think that's Jesus' challenge for us at the end of the passage. Will he find faith on earth? It's not a judgment to say, no, he won't, and that's just the end of the story but it's to call us back to that course correction. It's to call us to evaluate our own lives and say, am I embodying faith? Because if I am, it's going to show itself in persistent prayer. And that persistent prayer is going to protect me from losing heart. And friends, that's not only an individual pursuit. That's why the Lord has brought all of you together as his people. Not only are you his beloved child in Christ, but collectively you're his beloved flock. He longs to shepherd you, to protect you from evil. He brings you together that you might edify one another. He brings you together that you might pray together, that you might utter your petitions alongside each other to a God who is pleased to hear you. Friends, when we understand the Lord's prerogative to care for us, we have every reason to pray And not lose heart. So let us not become victims of this world by looking to ourselves, but let us be victors by looking to Christ. Amen. Well, thank you for watching this one, friends. I hope that it was encouraging to you. I hope that this taught you something about the gracious perspective of God to answer our prayers and how we should approach prayer with a sense of hope and encouragement because of the way that Christ has made for us uh, to gain an audience with the one and true God. And I hope that this maybe helps you as I mentioned in the sermon course correct uh some things that might not be in line in your own life uh, that might be prohibiting you from approaching prayer in the right way. Well, uh please take advantage of all of the other materials that I have on betterbiblereading.com including the free course that I have To help you read the Bible, we go over translations, we go over different kinds of Bibles, we go over specific reading methods to help you get the most out of your Bible reading experience and really take it from bland and generic to better. And it's completely free. You can enroll now. You can go through it at your own pace. Just go to betterbiblereading.com forward slash free class or just go to the homepage. You'll see it right there at the top. All right. Well, thank you so much and I'll see you all real soon. Take care.